Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be here with you as we anticipate Christmas in just a few short days, and uh, we're continuing in our Advent series. And as we come uh, this morning to God's Word, may it prompt us even to come to this table uh, later in our service. And I just want to welcome our grade school kids uh, with us this weekend as they're on Christmas break. And uh, I often hear comments like, uh, our kids are the future of the church. Well, that's just bad theology, okay? Because we are the, ch- our kids are the church today. Because if they are, have their faith in Christ, we're a part of the body of Christ. And they have a part to play in God's story. And I mean, if you read through scripture, isn't it amazing how it just seems like God is so determined to use young people to advance his mission in this world? I mean, he used a teenage Jewish girl named Esther to save a nation from certain destruction. He used a seven-year-old Josiah, the boy king, to launch a national revival. He used a shepherd boy, David, to take down the giant that started a military victory. He used Jeremiah, the young prophet, to bring wrath to a disobedient nation. And he used a teenage peasant girl named Mary to carry in her womb the son of God who would save the world. So we say, welcome to our young people. Because if God has a tendency to use young people to further his mission and message, we should as well. So we're just so thankful for our grade school kids, our junior high students, and our high school students that are a part of our community. Which leads us this morning to consider the story of this young teenage girl named Mary. And we're continuing today in our teaching series as we look towards Christmas through the eyes of Mary, which we are calling the Mother of God. And we've been kind of Benjamin buttoning our way through history over the last few weeks uh, as we've looked at the life of Mary, first in Acts after the ascension and resurrection of Jesus when Mary was at the end of her life, she was around 65 years old, and she began to ponder what the resurrection really meant to her. And then last week, we looked at uh, John 19 and Mary's experience of Jesus at the cross when she was about 50 years old and all that that meant to her, that Jesus was the Savior of the world. And so today we're coming to the beginning or ending, whichever way you want to look at it. So before we begin, uh, let's pray together. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And so as we think on these things today, would you open our hearts and our minds that we might hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you don't know what to do with Mary, you're in good company. The archives of history and the ancient echoes of sermons across history never quite knew what to make of her either. She's been honored in shrines, she's been prayed to, uh, worshipped even. Botticelli, Cassatt, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Bellini, Caravaggio, Dali, and thousands of artists have imagined her on, on paintings and on canvas. And for some traditions, Mary is an afterthought, really a means to an end. She's rarely discussed other than in the story to occupy a figure that sets up your nativity scene on your counter in your home, where she occupies this modest place in biblical history. And really, the main understanding of Mary is as a young woman who played the noble role of giving birth to Jesus. She's most often represented as poised, uh, quiet, responsive. She does her duty alongside Joseph, then she kind of fades into the background. But if we pause the traditional narrative for a moment and sit with the context of her story, we discovered that no one in all of human history has had that sort of divine interruption that Mary faced and experienced. 
Now, without a question, the pillars of biblical faith, like Abraham and Moses, found their lives divinely interrupted as well. And if we walk through the story of scripture, we see that God was always at work in people's lives and that work would always interrupt and startle most of the people. But none held the son of the living God the way Mary did. And if you go to Italy and you walk around, there's images of the Virgin Mary literally everywhere. In every church, on the streets, in alleys, on walls, all sorts of places. And these are a couple of shrines where people can go to and they put flowers up. These are just on the streets and uh, they can put plaques and prayers, uh, uh, give thanks to Mary. And in all the pictures, it seems like Mary is always holding the baby Jesus. So those pictures or those images, they're post-Christmas pictures. But in the Museum of the Madonna del Pardo in Tuscany, there's an advent image of Mary, a pregnant Mary that is painted by Piero Dello Francesca. And it's the Virgin Mary, and she's wearing a simple blue dress, and there's a little crease of, of white showing, signifying her purity, and her hand is on her belly, um, kind of caressing it both as a protective gesture and kind of a proud display of this miracle of life within her. Because generally, there aren't many pictures of Mary pregnant, carrying Jesus inside her body. Now, the Orthodox Church calls Mary, or the mother of God, Theotokos, meaning the God-bearer, because she carried God inside her body and then gave birth to him. And so as we look at Christmas through the eyes of Mary, the Theotokos, I hope that her story will remind you that you also are a God-bearer. Because what if we are all pregnant with God, carrying God's presence in our bodies, asked to give birth to God through our lives? Now, you might be glad that you don't have to be a God-bearer, you know, riding a donkey for 100 kilometers on the way to Bethlehem. But, you know, our own lives can make for just as long and difficult journey. Now, God is wholly other than us. God is beyond our comprehension. We comprehension. We are not God. I'm not trying to say otherwise. But when we go back into the creation story, we hear these words, you know, that we were made in the image of God. Jesus even says, abide in me as I in you. And even Paul will say that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So each of us is, in a sense, a God bearer. Each of us as a human being bears this image of God. And Jesus, just as Jesus was born to walk on this earth among us, Jesus is born in each one of us. In the love, forgiveness, and hope of the Advent season. And in the word of his name itself, Emmanuel, who is God with us. And so it all begins then for Jesus' mother with the Annunciation, which in itself is a story of singular beauty and wonder. And so I want to consider the story of the Annunciation, which simply means a message from the angel or the angelic announcement to Mary that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. And in this, I want to examine closely Mary's response to the message of the angel, for in some ways, Mary is like us. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, where we're going to be picking up the story. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get you one. You can simply stop by our Welcome Center, and we have Bibles there, and we'd love to give you a Bible to have. But turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 26. And friends, this is the word of God. 
In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." Now, the setting of this angelic announcement must have drawn some serious amazement from the first century Jewish readers when they read about this because Gabriel came not to Judea. He ignored Judea, which was really the focal point of God's work throughout history. And he instead comes to Galilee, a land that was really subject to long-lasting Jewish contempt because of an ethnically mixed population. And even more so, the angel not only bypassed Judea for Galilee, but the city of Jerusalem for the village of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was an inferior, corrupt town that was really overrun by Gentiles and Roman soldiers. And when Nathaniel mentions Nazareth in John chapter 1, what does he say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, everyone knew Nazareth was a dump. Like, what's going on here? Now, of course, in skipping Judea and Galilee, Gabriel also ignores the temple, the most holy place in Israel, and he enters the poor home of Mary. Now, in the world's eyes, Mary was a nobody. She was too young to know much of the world or to have accomplished anything, and biblical scholars say that she's probably between the age of 12 and 14. She was a young teenager. She was poor, and evidence of this can be seen when uh, Mary and Joseph go to the temple to have Jesus circumcised in in Luke chapter 2. The offering given for the ceremony really depended on the social class of the family, and so if you are the poorest of the poor, the family would give only two birds, and that's what Jesus' family gave at the ceremony. And as with all poor peasant girls, she was illiterate. Her knowledge of scripture was limited to what she had memorized at home and what she had heard in the synagogue. And from all indicators, her life was not going to be extraordinary. She would marry humbly, 
give birth to numerous poor children, never travel farther a few kilometers from her house, and one day die like the thousands of others around her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And yet this pregnant, unwed peasant girl is today one of the most famous human beings in the history of our planet. By contrast, most of us are going to be forgotten after a few generations. So what makes her great? It's how she responds to God and his message. And as we come into this story, we cannot miss the inescapable fact that the greatest news ever proclaimed in Israel came to the humblest of people. And Mary said that exactly in her Magnificat when she sang, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. And Martin Luther once said, He might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' daughter who was fair, rich, clad in gold embroidered raiment and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. And friends, if the incarnation happened today, it would happen exactly the same way. And so as we study this annunciation, we must accept the essential spiritual fact of the incarnation in the gospel, that the Lord comes to needy people. Those who realize that without him, they cannot make it. Those who acknowledge their weakness and spiritual deficiency because the incarnation, salvation, resurrection, and Christmas are not for the proud and self-sufficient. And as we follow the course of the Annunciation, we will catch the pulse of the virgin's heart because Mary is a model for those who experience the birth of the Savior in their own lives. Now, as we come to this story, we find an angel showing up. Now, anytime an angel shows up throughout the pages of Scripture, generally it's not a heartwarming experience for most people. Most people generally feel like they're about to die when an angel shows up. To them, okay? So meeting Gabriel in this moment would probably be extremely intimidating, to say the least. However it was, verse 26 describes what happened. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now remember, Mary's somewhere between the age of 12 and 14. She was unread, inexperienced. She didn't have a TV. She didn't have a cell phone. How do you think she felt? An angel showing up in her bedroom. Teenager. What? Scared. Yeah. She wanted to freak out, right? She probably thought, this can't be real. What's going on here? And that's why I think Gabriel's kind greeting, it was pretty necessary. Greetings, O favored one. Don't shoot me. What did Gabriel mean by this famous greeting? Well, the Virgin Mary is in fact the most blessed of women. And therefore, the Blessed Virgin Mary is a fitting designation for her. And the title naturally springs from Mary's own title that she talks about in the Magnificat in verse 48 when she says, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary was the only woman of the billions who have inhabited our planet who has chosen to carry and nurse God's son. And for that, we must call her blessed. So how does Mary respond in the story? Well, the first thing Mary does is she thinks. She uses her power of reason. Because right after the angel appears, the text says in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And that word there, discern or wandered in the verse, is the word dialogizomai. Dialogizomai. Which means to use logic. To reason with intensity. It means that Mary was trying to figure out how it could be true. That's her dialogizomai face. You know, (laughs) took me a while to find that. Now, this might strike you as odd because today we like to think that we're rational beings, right? Like we ask hard questions, we do our research, we demand empirical evidence. Therefore, it would be impossible for us to believe that an angel is actually real, that an angel could show up. The implication is that we believe that the ancient people were superstitious and they had no problem believing in in the supernatural. We assume that if an angel showed up, people of that time said, oh, It's an angel. Hello, what's the message, please? Thank you very much. No. Mary was troubled. This was hard to think about. And so far, Gabriel has said nothing about his mission yet to her. But now came the annunciation itself, and these initial words must have been shocking. Verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So Mary is told that she's going to have a baby boy, and she's commanded to name him Jesus. Now at this point, I doubt she understands what's going on, because Jesus is actually a very popular name in that time, and it meant Savior. But she could hardly have grasped its full impact. However, as Gabriel continues, he says, He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now that impact statement must have been overwhelming. He's saying this child will be God's son. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So we see Mary here must be struggling to believe what she is hearing. Why? Well, Mary is Jewish, and this news definitely did not fit into her understanding of Judaism, because the message meant a human being would be divine. The idea that the God of Mount Sinai would become a little baby was impossible for her to understand, and offensive really to her moral sensibility. It was just as hard for Mary in her own way to believe the gospel as it is for us today. Because the Annunciation or this message was and is a major challenge to all paradigms and worldviews. In the Divine Comedy, that great 14th century epic of desire, when Dante, the pilgrim, at last approaches the mystical rose, the stadium of saints in the heaven of heavens, it is Bernard of Clairvaux who appears as his vinyl guide into the divine light. And he does so by guiding the pilgrim's eyes towards the Virgin Mary herself, sitting at the very top of those bleachers in the celestial realm. And he writes, Look now on the face that most resembles Christ, for nothing but its brightness can make you fit to look on Christ. And then in the greatest prayer of devotion ever devised, Dante has Bernard talk about this paradox of the incarnation, where he writes this, Virgin mother, daughter of your son, more humbled and exalted than any creature, fixed goal of the eternal plan. You are the one who so ennobled human nature that he who made it first did not disdain to make himself of its own making. Your womb relit flame of love. In that phrase, to make himself 
of its own making. Now, to put it another way, in a way that we understand it, when we read the Nicene Creed, this is what we read. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now, does it ever strike you at once how ridiculous that statement is? And at the same time, how absolutely right it is? Truly God, truly human. And we live with that paradox as we recite the creeds. It is a contradiction that puzzles the mind and yet redeems the heart. It's one that proclaims that the God whose name cannot be uttered to us is as close to us as a newborn baby is to its mother's breast. And that mother is daughter to her own son. At once humbled and exalted, a daughter who so ennobled human nature that God who created human nature did not disdain to self-create out of the stuff of God's own making. Entering a human womb. I mean, there is no place in history, there has never been a period in time where there are not enormous intellectual barriers to believing that announcement. That the creator of the God of the universe is coming into a woman's womb to be born as a human being through her? At no idea, at no time has that idea ever fit comfortably with the wisdom of any age. So the Annunciation takes on all the cultural narratives and demands hard intellectual work. And what does Mary do? She does not avoid it. She ponders the evidence. She weighs the internal consistency of the claim and she concludes that it's true. And if she can do that, we must be willing to use our reason to weigh this Christian message. She starts by thinking and so must we. But the second thing she does is she expresses her doubts openly. She says to the angel in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now again, Mary's not naive. She doesn't say, well, you're an angel. I guess you can do miracles, so I'll just accept it. No, she says something any rational person would say. Literally, it means, how can this be since I have not known a man sexually? This is an openly expressed doubt to an angel, which shows a willingness to be honest about her uncertainties and questions. Now, I would say there's two kinds of doubts. There's honest doubts and there's dishonest doubts. Dishonest doubts are, 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 can be quite cowardly. They show disrespect and laziness. A dishonest doubt will say, that's crazy and walks away. Saying that's impossible or that's stupid, that's just a statement. It isn't an argument. It's a way of getting out of the hard work of actually engaging your mind and thinking about something. But on the other side, honest doubts are humble because they lead you to ask questions instead of just automatically putting up a wall in your life. And when you ask real questions, it actually puts you in a place of vulnerability. And Mary's question to the angel actually asks for good information and leaves her open to the possibility of a good answer that would cause her maybe to shift her views. So honest doubts then are open to belief. And so if you are really asking for information and good arguments, you probably are going to get some. 
And here's what I find wonderful. If she had never expressed her doubt, the angel never would have spoken one of the great statements in the Bible in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. And I am so grateful for a doubt because that statement has shaped me and encouraged me for years. All kinds of people have been helped immensely by these words. And the only right reason we get this little bit of extra revelation is because of Mary's doubt. So the more you're willing to express doubt honestly and humbly, the more you bring up your honest questions in whatever journey you're on in faith the further you and the people around you are going to get. So here at Southview, we want you to ask questions. We want you to bring up your doubts and your uncertainty so that we can walk together in community to find answers and truth together. But the third thing Mary does, even after these doubts, is she does surrender completely. Yes, eventually, that's something we all have to do. After she hears nothing will be impossible with God, she makes her move. She says in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. One author put it like this. When it comes to following Jesus, the hardest thing to give is in. In some fashion, you have to say what Mary said when you give your life to Christ. You, ha you have to say something like, I don't know all that you're going to ask of me, Father but I'll do whatever it says in your word, whether I like it or not. And I'll accept patiently whatever you send into my life, whether I understand it or not. In other words, you simply cannot know ahead of time all the things that God is going to ask you to do. Mary certainly couldn't have known all that it would cost, although she must have had some idea. And so eventually did Joseph I mean, it's interesting if you compare the two narratives in Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 gives Mary's perspective on the Annunciation. Matthew chapter 1 gives Joseph's perspective. And when Joseph discovered Mary was pregnant, he knew that he was not the father. He decided to break off the engagement. But he got a visit from his own angel, and that angel said, hey, you're to marry her anyway. Now, Joseph knew that if he married her, then everybody in their small town would know that the child had been conceived out of wedlock because they knew how to read calendars back then as well. In fact, most of Mary's friends would have discerned early on that she was pregnant before the wedding because sooner or later, everyone would know either they had sex before marriage or she was unfaithful to him. And in either case, they would have violated the moral and social norms of that patriarchal culture. They would forever be second-class citizens within their society. They and their children would be rejected by some and really always suspected by everyone else. So what does it mean for Joseph and Mary then to accept the word of the Lord to say, we embrace the call to receive this child. We will accept whatever comes with it. Well, this text answer says it's courage, a willingness to do God's will, whatever the cost is. Because when the angel said to Joseph, marry her, he was saying, if Jesus comes into your life, you are going to be rejected. You will have to kiss your reputation goodbye. And he married her. Now, I'm sure some of Joseph's friends said, why in the world did you marry her? Either you did that or she was unfaithful to you. Now, can you imagine Joseph trying to tell them the truth? Well, I can explain it, really. It, she got pregnant through the Holy Spirit. The angels came and told us all about it. Yeah, the truth wasn't something his friends would understand. 
and he knew what they were going to think of him. And it's the same with us. If you're open about your Christian faith in whatever social circles you find yourself in, whatever vocational field you find yourself in, your reputation may suffer. And yet, why do you think Jesus Christ came into this world through a pregnant, unwed teenager girl in a patriarchal shame and honor society? God didn't have to do it that way. But I think it was his way of saying, I don't do things the way the world expects. But in the opposite way altogether, my weakness is made perfect. My power is made perfect in weakness. My Savior Son will be born not in a cradle in a royal palace, but into a feed trough in a stable. Not to powerful and famous people, but to disgraced peasants. And isn't that all part of the pattern throughout Scripture? For Jesus will win salvation through weakness, suffering, and death on the cross. And he achieves power and influence through sacrificial service. So Mary and Joseph were willing to do for Jesus what he was going to do for them, as Philippians 2 talks about, that he became obedient to his father even to the point of death on the cross. So she surrenders all, regardless of the cost. But Mary does one last thing. Mary goes to Elizabeth, who speaks to her in the power of the Holy Spirit. It must have helped Mary a great deal. I'm certain it encouraged her. And it might have actually helped her understand her situation. For as soon as Elizabeth is done speaking, Mary breaks into song. And it's called the Magnificat. And she begins to worship and praise God with all of her heart. And in that song, she goes back through the Old Testament, connecting stuff from the Psalms, Isaiah, and the prophets, making remarkable connections that reveal the coming of the Messiah. And so the Annunciation is not a contradiction of biblical faith. It's actually its fulfillment. And these insights to Mary all come because she visits Elizabeth. So the fourth thing we need is we need community. Mary does not appear to understand what is going on until she goes to see another believing sister and they spend time talking together, worshiping together, praying together. And so we, like Mary, need to think intensely, doubt openly, and eventually surrender completely. But it won't be enough to simply do that as an isolated individual without trusted friends coming alongside us. We're never going to make it apart from community. Mary was a nobody who became greater than everybody simply because God came to her and she responded in the humblest way. She reasoned, she doubted, she surrendered, and she connected with others. And really, that is God's invitation to each one of us this Advent season. Bernard of Clairvaux, who I mentioned earlier in the Divine Comedy, was a monk in the 12th century. And in a sermon he did addressed to the Virgin Mary, he imagines that charged moment uh, before she answers the angel. It was really, in his mind, a moment of uneasy silence in which Bernard believes the whole fate of humankind rests. And this is what he writes. Answer, O virgin. Answer the angel quickly, or rather, through the angel, answer God. Speak the word and receive the word. Offer what is yours and conceive what is God's. Breathe one fleeting word 
and embrace the eternal word. Offer what is yours and conceive what is God's. I pray that that would be our prayer as we enter this season of incarnation. What Bernard says to the virgin, we also in her honor must allow him to say to us, in all of our sinfulness and our foolish decisions, can we live in this season? Can we say, we will offer what is ours? Offer no less than all that we are and allow ourselves in solidarity with Mary to conceive what is God's, in whose image we are created and by whose birth, death, and resurrection, we all of us stand redeemed through faith in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, how it forms us and shapes us. And really only you know the longing that is in this room, longing for whether it's love, for healing, for wholeness, longing for connection, answers, or direction. Somehow we trust, Father, that you are attentive to everything. And so we pray for the coming of your kingdom on earth as it is around your heavenly throne. We are a people grown weary of waiting. And so we ask that you would give us clarity in this season to see and remember the ways that you've been near to us and see new ways forward. Teach us to trust that you stand with those in need. You stand with us in our need for salvation because we do know that you hold initiative for our lives, that your love planned our salvation before we even saw the light of day. And so we wait. We wait for your coming in your vulnerable baby in whom all things are made new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.